0: Welcome to African-American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Stratter. Please go to brightnews.com and follow us there. You can also find us at acons.substack.com dot dot or anchor.fm forward slash AACONS. Alan Dershowitz is the greatest legal mind of our time, of all time. And he's here with us today. He was the youngest full professor in Harvard Law School history, where he is now the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus. He is the author of many books, including his latest, The Price of Principle, why Integrity is Worth the Consequences, which is now his most recent book and is the host of The Durst Show, which can be found on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and elsewhere. He's been a guest on our show, and it is my pleasure to welcome him back. Welcome back to the show,
1: Professor Dershowitz. Thank you so much. I love the title of your show, The Soul of Conservative Movement. That's such a Thank terrific uh, uh, identification.
0: Thank you. So far, we know that President Biden possessed classified documents dating back to when he was in the Senate. It might be forgivable for a vice president to have classified documents, but it seems considerably less so uh, for a senator to have classified documents. Because some were stored in a house lived in by his son, Hunter, Uh, Many of these classified documents were easily accessible by Hunter Biden and many of the interesting, shall we say, characters that surrounded him. We also know that at least one of the documents uh, dealt with a country with which the Biden family has had some shady business dealings, Ukraine, should we not begin to say the word impeachment?
1: no no it's not a crime uh for there to be an impeachment remember my argument in front of the united states senate that i think you supported on behalf of president uh, trump that you need two specific crimes treason bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors and this wouldn't fit into those categories now for it to be a crime the person has to know they possess classified material And not only must he knowingly possess it, he must have an intent to retain it. And I suspect that with Trump, with Biden, with Pence, with all of them, it just got mixed up in their regular material. But I think there are two solutions, one a short term, one a long one. One, uh, uh, Biden should right now declassify everything, unless it's absolutely essential to keep it secret. We should know what was in that Ukrainian briefing to see whether or not Hunter Biden may have used material from that briefing in his dealings. We can get to that. There's no secret now about uh, a briefing about Ukraine years ago, and there's certainly no secrets uh, in any of the Senate papers. They're old, they're anachronistic, and uh, they're probably all in the public domain. So that's the short term. Let's declassify. But I have a long-term solution that will solve this problem for the future. When you walk out of a clothing store uh, and you didn't pay Uh, and they have a little tag uh, on the pocket and you try to walk out with it or I try to walk out with it, what happens? It beeps. Uh, There's a very simple electronic method that can be used on every single piece of classified material. The classification stamp ought to contain electronic tracking devices so that no piece of classified material ever leaves the White House without the archives knowing about it, without the Justice Department knowing about it. And if there's suspicion that there might be material in other people's files, and I'm sure there is, I'm sure every president, every vice president has some material, you just go electronically and you search for it and it goes beep, 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 and you find it. And then you can solve the problem. You know, we can send a man to the moon. (laughs) Why can't we solve (laughs) the classification problem electronically and technologically?
0: See, greatest legal mind of our time. I said it. That's a great solution. Now, we're going to put this on the screen um, in its entirety. But to summarize the United States Code Title 18, Section 2071, made famous by former Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe, who argued it should be applied to Trump and anyone who conceals, removes or destroys a record in the custody of the United States government can face fines or imprisonment and shall forfeit his office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States for whom, was this statute intended to apply to if it doesn't apply to someone who essentially left classified documents in the hands of Hunter Biden?
1: Well, we have many issues. Uh, First, you have the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment following the Civil War said basically that anybody who fought in the Civil War against the North um, is disqualified from holding office. Tribe and others have said that applies to um, um, President Trump. No, it doesn't. That applied to uh, you know General Lee, and it applied to Jefferson Davis, and it applied to people who uh, fought for segregation and slavery and against the Union. It, it was never intended to apply to people who uh, uh, may have inadvertently had some classified material or may have declassified the material and not told people about it, it's it's a stretch. It uh, The statute doesn't apply. The Constitution doesn't apply. Uh, let every American have the right to vote for or against Donald Trump. I voted against him twice. Um, I have no plans to vote for him, depending on who he runs against, obviously. But as an American citizen, I have the right to vote either for or against him. And neither Professor Tribe nor bureaucrats in Washington should deny the American voter the right to vote for whoever they want.
0: Now, you wrote that the progressive wing of the Democrat Party is anything but progressive on freedom of speech, due process, and other constitutional rights. If there is such a distinction between liberalism and progressivism, in that progressivism is more totalitarian, then should we be concerned that the Democrat Party itself seems to be increasingly more progressive, especially? With the rise of such figures as Bernie Sanders, Rashida Tlaib, Pete Buttigieg, and AOC?
1: Definitely, without a doubt. Now, let me be very clear there's a big difference between liberals and radicals, or liberals on the one hand and progressives or wokes on the other hand. You're looking at a liberal. Uh, I'm a liberal. I support free speech, I support due process. I support all the traditional civil liberties. That doesn't mean that I necessarily lean left. I lean left on some issues. I lean right on some issues. Mostly I'm in the middle, but I'm a liberal. I believe in total freedom of speech, the marketplace of ideas. People on the radical, radical left, whether you call them progressives or wokes or whatever you want to call them, are kind of on the road to totalitarianism. They know the truth. There's no need for dissenting opinions. There's no need for uh, due process. We know that when a woman charges Mm -hmm. a man with an offense, uh, he must be guilty, she must be telling the truth. That's part of the genetic makeup of men and women. So what do you need to have a trial? What do you need to have due process? We know that when conservatives want to speak on campuses, they're wrong and we're right. Why do we need their dissenting views? Let's shut them down. Let's make sure that only our view is presented. That is the road to totalitarianism. And that road can be paved with good intentions. Some of these people have good intentions. They want to see America a better place. They want to see it as a utopia. But I just don't believe that it's utopian to do away with the fundamental constitutional rights that have survived longer than any other constitution in the history of humankind. That's right.
0: You have recently returned from a stay in Israel, a nation that you have defended vigorously for most of your life. Rarely has she needed your defense from the American left more than she does today. Congressman Rashida Tlaib, as we've pointed out, uh, stated a few months ago that, quote, I want you all to know that among progressives, it becomes clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back uh, Israel's apartheid government, end quote. Why does this narrative that progressives cannot be pro-Israel continue to persist, Professor?
1: It's historically absurd, you know, when Israel was established, it had the support of the left, it had the support of the Soviet Union, it had the support of progressives, it had all the radicals, all the lefties. Uh, I remember Pete Seeger, who, who was a very, in fact, I think admitted at one point he was a communist. Pete Seeger, as part of his concerts, I went to his concerts. He used to sing Hava Nagila Hava. He loved Israel. And then what happened is Israel won the 1967 war, the Soviet Union uh, broke with Israel over that war, and American left, starting with American communists, then moving to the American progressive left, just followed the Communist Party line in the Soviet Union. Now, ironically, the Soviet Union, which is now Russia, uh, has somewhat better relationships with Israel than the American left does. And it's become part of the the narrative the American left that you have to hate Israel. So you get people on campuses today, feminists, you get African-American people, you get people uh, from Latino backgrounds who want to become progressives. And they're told, no, if you support Israel, you can't become a progressive. Look what happened at the University of California in Berkeley, 14 clubs, 14 clubs, sponsored by the state of California, because it's a public university, including the Black Law Students Association, the Gay Law Students Association, the Women's Law Students Association, have all said, if you support Israel, even just if you support its right to exist, you can oppose its policies. If you think it has the right to exist, you cannot speak about any subject at these clubs. So if I get invited, for example, to the African-American Law Student Association, and they want me to talk about how, the, how I think the Supreme Court's going to come down on this affirmative action case that's now pending with regard to Harvard and the University of North Carolina. I cannot speak unless I take an oath saying, no, I reject Israel's right to exist as the nation state of the Jewish people. Unless I'm willing to take that oath, I can't speak at the Black Law Student Association, the Women's Law Student Association. I can't talk about abortion at the Women's Law School Association. I can't talk about gay rights at the uh, Gay Students Association. And that's what's happened. It's become a litmus test. So for a lot of young students who want to become liberal, want to become progressive, want to join college organizations, want to support the environment, want to, they can't unless they are willing to give up their their support for israel it's just it's bigotry it's bigotry in the extreme and it's a new form of mccarthyism
0: you know what's so crazy about that i grew up in the same i was born in san francisco i grew up in the the bay area most of my life i moved to texas a couple years ago yeah 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 and for the cradle of free speech to have devolved into that is really truly a tragedy
1: Tell you something that probably a lot of people don't know. I was there at the free speech movement. I was then a visiting scholar at Stanford, and I represented some of the people on the left who were part of the free speech movement at Berkeley. And then I went back and I revisited what I had done. And it was so clear to me that that free speech movement was never a free speech movement, it was always free speech for me, but not for thee. The people who were being oppressed at that point, whose speech was being denied, were people on the left. So it was so easy to say, oh, free speech, free speech for free speech. But as soon as free speech became an issue directed against conservatives, suddenly these very same people are in favor of censorship or against free speech. So there's no such phony as a kind of free speech progressive who wanted free speech only for progressives. And then says, no, when it comes to conservatives, we don't need it because we're right, they're wrong.
0: I want to touch on something that you just said. You often speak about Senator McCarthy and McCarthyism. How did that impact your view of free speech?
1: Very much so. Uh, So I went to college in 1955. Uh, I was a, a lousy student in high school and I had to take a test at Brooklyn College, which was a free school and mostly the kids who went there were people of color, people uh, of uh, uh, Latino background, people of Italian American background, Irish American background. Most of us were either children or grandchildren of immigrants. Uh, uh, you know, it was it was a school that was free, so you know it was a place you went to if you couldn't afford to go to a to a, a paying college. And I became president of the student body at Brooklyn College, and um, I, I fought against McCarthyism the, the the administration was firing professors who had been communists in the 1930s now you know remember many professors who were communists in the 1930s mm-hmm. communists because in Europe the only alternative was to be a communist or a fascist there were no centrist parties so a lot of them became communists and they were no longer communists but the McCarthyites were were trying to get rid of them and I was standing up uh, for them, I was not a, a very, very strongly anti-communist, very strongly anti-totalitarian, but I believe in free speech for everybody. So I got into arguments with a lot of people um, on both sides. And the president of the university, the academic president, refused to recommend me for a Rhodes Scholarship or for admission to Yale Law School. Um, uh, because he thought I was a fellow traveler, that I was a communist. Of course, you couldn't be more anti-communist than me. I grew up in a you know, Jewish household where we're, we were furious at Stalin for killing so many Jews and killing so many people. But I experienced McCarthyism very personally. It was ending. It was coming to an end by the time I was at college, certainly by the time I finished college, but it was still there. And it really taught me that you need to have free speech for for everybody, particularly people who are unpopular, people who you disagree with. And at Brooklyn College, I became part of the civil rights movement. I went uh, uh, to marches on Washington, uh, then at law school. I, I actually attended Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. I was a law clerk, but awesome. uh, I was forbidden from going. The chief justice said nobody can go because there might be demonstrations and arrests, but I went and then I went down South. And uh, participated in the civil rights movement between my, I think it was my second and third year in law school. So you know, I've been involved in a lot of these battles over the years: McCarthyism, civil rights, and and I am a, a genuine principled liberal, um, and I support everybody's free speech rights and everybody's due process rights. And boy, does that get me into trouble, both with the right and with the left.
0: But I think that's the way we should all be. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I I think that's what I'm seeing now is that we are seeing such a telescoping, if you will, in the sense that, oh, you know, he's such a bad guy. oh, Orange man, bad, that kind of thing. But then it can happen to you. Uh, We saw Sarah Huckabee (laughs) Sanders escorted out of a restaurant.
1: Uh, uh, I defend probably the most unpopular defendant in recent history, Jeffrey Epstein. And as a result of it, I was uh, falsely accused of being involved with somebody I never met, never heard of. She's finally, after all these years, admitted she's come forward and she said, "I now recognize, I may have made a mistake in identifying him." In other words, she may have very well have um, mistaken me for somebody, uh, somebody else. And we, she's withdrawn all of her charges mm-hmm. and dropped them. But boy, I understood what it meant to be the subject of this kind of attack. And, you know, I've been attacked mercilessly because of my defense of President Trump. Um, uh, uh, I, my speeches have been canceled. Uh, a synagogue that I used to go to won't allow me to speak. Uh, Temple Emmanuel in New York, uh, the 92nd Street Y, where I was the second most popular speaker after Elie Wiedel canceled me. Um, so, you know, I've been canceled all over the place because of my defense of civil liberties and my defense of, uh, of freedom.
0: Uh, to touch on that, we often see people on the right suffer similar experiences that you describe in your book. Yeah. Uh, some have reported uh, hiring discrimination. Uh, they are denied services at businesses for wearing a MAGA hat, as I just alluded to. Governor Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders, uh, when she was uh the, uh, press secretary was escorted from a restaurant. Uh, just recently we saw a woman fired after her employers, uh, said, discovered that she was following, uh, conservatives on, uh, social media like Ben Shapiro. Should we be protected from discrimination based on how we vote in a similar way that we're protected against discrimination based on our faith or skin color?
1: Yes, of course we should. Look, in Chilmark, Massachusetts, where I have spent 53 summers, I went there for the first time to defend Senator Ted Kennedy, a a liberal. So I've been on the vineyard 53 years. And the library, the public library, paid for by public funds, had me speak there every year until I defended President Trump. Then they canceled me. They canceled my books. And um, and there's a favorite restaurant that my wife and I and my family go to. Uh, these so-called progressives on the hard left on Martha's Vineyard, you know, a bunch of total phonies, went over to the restaurant owner and said, if you continue to serve Alan Dershowitz and his wife, we're not going to come here anymore. Please stop in your restaurant. This is, even though I'm a liberal, this is because I defended a president of the United States on constitutional grounds that they opposed. And that's, that's just plain ordinary... McCarthyism. And it's interesting because Chilmark, Massachusetts, which is on Martha's Vineyard, was very much the victim of McCarthyism because back in the day, in the 40s and 50s, there were a lot of progressives and um, left-wingers that lived on Martha's Vineyard, and they all lived in Chilmark. And so Chilmark was a victim of McCarthyism, and now they are perpetrators of McCarthyism, and they've uh, pointed the victimization at me. I don't accept the state as a victim. I fight back. And, um, you know, if the library doesn't allow me to speak, I plan to sue them in federal court uh, because I don't think that you can deny a public library, cannot deny somebody the right to speak there uh, just because of who they defended or what political side they're on. Imagine what would happen if this liberal library in Chilmark, Massachusetts uh, got under the control of conservatives and said, no, 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 from now on, we will only allow people who, uh, who support uh, 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 bans on abortion or who support uh, other kinds of things like that to speak. Uh, they would be an outrage. It's okay yes. if you support, if you ban somebody who because they defended Donald Trump. The vast majority of people in Schumacher think that's a good thing.
0: That's so crazy to me, because getting back to Berkeley, you know, going to college is supposed to open your horizons and broaden your horizons. And as adults, you know, we're supposed to be able to talk to people who hold different opinions and think, uh, you know, and, and hold discourse. And so it just it's surprising to me, I think to see us get to this point. I have always enjoyed having you on the show. I've always enjoyed our conversations. And I know that you and I hold differing opinions on some things, but, and you're still a fascinating person. You're still someone interesting to talk to.
1: I appreciate that. I used to love being on William Buckley shows. You know, he was the great godfather of academic conservatism. God and Man at Yale is a great, great book. Uh, and he and I disagreed about everything. And then we went out and we had a drink and we talked about it. And occasionally he would call me and say, Alan, I read one of your eds. I agree. Or I would call him and say, you know, Bill, I actually heard you on television. And I, I agree with what you said. You know, people should be able to change their minds. It was the great judge Learned Hand uh, who once said that the, the road to tyranny is essentially paved by certainty. If you think you're so certain of your opinions, then you don't need... Uh, dissent that the idea of tolerance of other people's views is so so important, and I think we're I think we're losing that. I think we're losing that to a sense of uh, you got to be on my side in every way, and if you deviate one bit from it, you're now a, a, a traitor, and and we will have nothing uh, to do with you. And that's much worse on the left than it is on the right. And um, as a person who has a lot of friends on the left. It's appalling to me. I mean, I sat next to uh, Caroline Kennedy, who is now the United States ambassador to Australia. She was seated next to me at a dinner party in Martha's Vineyard. And she said, if I knew you had been invited, I wouldn't have come. This is a woman who has to talk to China and the head of Vietnam and, and, and Russia. And she can't abide the idea of being at the same dinner party with somebody who agrees with much of what she said, who worked for some members of our family, Ted Kennedy and Bob Kennedy and and others, but she can't sit next to me because I defended Trump on the floor of the Senate. That's where it's come, and that's terrible. We were invited to an engagement party on Martha's Vineyard of Friends, and then we got an email saying, uh, uh, Alan, you can't come because everybody will leave if they see you coming to our party. Carolyn, your wife, she can come. But Alan, you you can't come. This is from friends, uh, a friend, a student who I've known for 40 years, who uh, had a concert every year that he sponsored, and I would sometimes speak at it. And it was about the 60s, and I would always have fun there. This year, he he called and said, "I, I can't invite you because if I invite you to the to the concert, it will be political. It will be social suicide on my part. Nobody will ever talk to me again, or invite me to a party." And I said to him, then you ought to commit social suicide. That's what friends do. You don't abandon friends because people, intolerant people say they won't invite you to to dinner parties. But that's not the way people are today. It's groupthink. They follow the crowd. And the crowd has now said that Dershowitz is unacceptable. So I'm unacceptable. I have new friends. I have real friends. That's okay. The toll is taken on my wife. The toll is taken on my children and my grandchildren. That's inexcusable. And I write about that extensively in my book, The Price of Principle, because it's a price not only you pay, but your family pays as well. And that's not fair.
0: That is terrible. When I was appointed to serve on Black Voices for Trump, you know, having grown up in the very liberal Bay Area and being a conservative and not only a conservative, but a black conservative, you know, I got quite a bit of grief and people that were very close to me, as close as my own family, people that I had grown up with uh, no longer spoke to me. And it's really sad because when I would take the time to talk to people one-on-one, if someone did approach me and say, you know, I really kind of want to understand this because I don't, I don't understand it. They would find that, you know, my my views are very nuanced on a lot of things. Uh, you know, people would, on the s- surface of things, you know, ascribe a certain set of beliefs to me just by hearing the word conservative.
1: Or yeah. by the word black. You know, we yes. everybody, if you're black, as who was it? I think it was, wasn't it President Biden? Some Somebody who said, if, yeah. if you're black and you don't vote Democrat, there's something wrong with you. And yes. Stereotyping. You know, they do it to African-Americans. They do it to Jews. They do it to women. They do it to Latino-Americans. Look, we're individuals. We're human beings. We're entitled to come to our own conclusions. You are perfectly free to be a conservative. And I will admire you as much as if you were a liberal. I don't base my admiration on people's political views and the idea that you're black, you must be. Uh, liberal. You're Jewish. You must be uh, liberal. Um, it, it, it's absurd. I have friends who are Cuban uh, in, uh, in 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 Florida. They have the same thing. Uh, most Cubans, when they came over because they suffered under Castro, were conservative. Now some of them become liberal and they're regarded as traitors. No, if you're Cuban, you have to be. A conservative. Well, maybe you do have to be anti-Castro, but that doesn't mean that you have to uh, accept a particular point of view. That you know, each of us is a human being first. I mean, for me, standing, uh, I was very far away from Martin Luther King. I was way, way on the outskirts of the crowd, and some of the speakers before him were, were were a little bit boring. But when he got up there and he said, "You know, I have a dream that someday," My children will be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of my skin. I had tears coming to my eyes because that's what I was fighting for all of my life. I didn't want to be judged because I was a Jew and my grandparents were from Poland. I wanted to be judged because of my accomplishments and my abilities, not the abilities or inabilities of other people of my background. And that was Martin Luther King. And uh, it was a remarkable moment for me and for so many people who grew up in the same background and environment as I did, regardless of, of color, race, identity, uh, you know, ethnicity, et cetera. It was a message for all humankind.
0: And as humans, I think that our views are probably a lot closer aligned than the media would have us believe. When you take those moments to have those conversations with people, you find points of connection if you're really looking for them. Yeah. And so that that's a tragedy, I think, uh, the price of of principle, as you describe yeah. in your book. You said in response to the recent rally in Israel in protest of the Netanyahu government's plan to overhaul the Israeli Supreme Court that you had been in Tel Aviv that night and that had you been in Tel Aviv that night, you would have protested as well. Why so?
1: Well, first, I was in Israel for five weeks. Just before that, I had an opportunity to speak to my old friend, Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, Bibi and I go back to uh, the very early 1970s, and we had a frank discussion, you know, Bibi and I have been close friends for all these years, and we disagree as often as we agree, but we always hug each other when we finish our our conversations, and here's an area where I I disagree with him. I do think that uh, the Supreme Court has been a, a bastion of defense of minority rights, and sometimes the minorities are Arabs, sometimes they're Orthodox Jews, sometimes they're atheists, sometimes, you know, they're Russian Jews. Uh, but the, 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 the province of a Supreme Court, the role of a Supreme Court is to tell the majority that it doesn't always win, that uh, no matter how many people want to establish Christianity as the official religion of America, the First Amendment says you can't do it. No matter how many people want to ban a hate speech the First Amendment says, no, you, you can't do it. And, and and the Israeli Supreme Court, even though it lacks a written constitution, has for years said to the majority, no, you, you just can't do that. I'll give you an example. One of the very, very, very conservative right-wing members of the new Netanyahu government, who I met with when I was in Israel, I met with people on the right, people on the left, people on the center. One of them had made a suggestion that because when Palestinians throw rocks at Israelis, They're more likely to want to kill them than when Israelis throw rocks at Palestinians. So therefore, the rules of engagement ought to be different. And the army ought to be freer to shoot lethal weapons at Palestinian rock throwers than at Israeli rock throwers. Now, that is so racist and so on and so illegal. You can't have different rules of engagement based on ethnicity or race. That's the kind of thing the Supreme Court of Israel would strike down. And even if the majority of Israelis, which I don't think they do, but even if they did support that, there's, there's, there's only so far you can go. You can't deny people their basic rights. And that's what the Supreme Court does. So I'm prepared for compromise on a number of issues in, in Israel on the Supreme Court. But on the core issue of human rights, civil liberties, free speech, due process, I do think like in the United States, the Supreme Court should have the last word.
0: Itamar Ben Givir, Israel's new public uh, security ministry, seems to be the most controversial figure in Prime Minister Netanyahu's new coalition government. He's a fan of convicted terrorist Rabbi Meir Kahani and has banned the display of the Palestinian flag in public places and wants to relax open fire regulations uh, to allow soldiers more leeway to shoot those who present a perceived threat, as you've just alluded to, such as a Palestinian holding stones that can be thrown at Israelis, as you've just alluded to. Politics make for strange bedfellows. But do you think that uh, Ben-Gavir will prove to be too strange a bedfellow for Prime Minister Netanyahu?
1: When I was in Israel, I went out of my way to see Ben Gavir. People said, no, no, you shouldn't see him. You shouldn't legitimate him. No, I don't believe that. Um, uh, You know, I did represent Mark Kahana, even though I disagreed with him. I was his lawyer, and I spoke to him just two days before he was assassinated. But I met with Ben Gavir, and we spent over an hour together, very, very bright, and he's very, very right-wing, and we fundamentally uh, disagreed, and I also spoke to Netanyahu, and Antonio assured me that he would never allow anything that was racist, sexist, uh, anti-civil liberties to enter into his government, that he would try to be a barrier to some of the proposals of Ben-Gavir. Some of Ben-Gavir's proposals are perfectly reasonable, but not the ones you just mentioned, Palestinian flag. Look, I defended the right of Palestinians to fly their flag in the Harvard Yard, even though obviously I'm very pro-Israel. But I believe in free speech and let the Palestinians fly their flag. Let them have their speeches. Let's compete in the marketplace of ideas. And when the Palestinians put up their flag, I went and I debated them right there and then. And I talked about what a terrible person Yasser Arafat was. They were praising Yasser Arafat and I was attacking him. And that was a great day at Harvard Yard. The Palestinian flag was up. The Israeli flag was up. Palestinians were arguing with me. I was arguing with them. Crowds were gathering. And that's the First Amendment. That's freedom of speech. That's the way it should be. You couldn't have that at Berkeley today, though.
0: How sad is that? Now, will this new Netanyahu coalition impact U.S.-Israeli relations?
1: I hope not. Uh, Israel and um, the United States are now having a joint military operation, the most extensive in the history of either country. I think it was designed essentially to send a message to Iran that neither Israel nor the United States would tolerate a uh, nuclear-armed arsenal from Iran. So militarily and in terms of intelligence, uh, Israel and uh, the United States are very, very close together. Look, there will be disagreements, particularly about the settlements, about the West Bank. Um, I don't think it's America's business to butt into how the Supreme Court of Israel operates or uh, how other domestic issues operate. Um, The United States objected when Netanyahu spoke at the House of Representatives. I was there when he did against the Iran deal. And now there are some in the United States that are trying to interfere in Israeli politics. So I hope the relationship between Israel and the United States will remain as strong as ever. They have to put up a united front against uh, Iran, against terrorism, against al-Qaeda. And they have amazing cooperation. Uh, in terms of exchange of of intelligence. When I was in Israel, I met with the leading people in the Mossad, the leading people in the Shin Bet, the Shabak, uh, the leading people in Israeli um, military intelligence, and and they and the United States get along incredibly well. In his new book, uh, Mike Pompeo talks about a phone call he got uh, from the head of Israeli intelligence. Uh, and Pompeo in the book said, I always take the call from Israeli intelligence, and they always take my call because we have prevented many, many disasters in Israel, he said, and they have presented many, many disasters among uh, American allies through their exchange of intelligence. So it's very important that the relationship be, uh, be maintained. And I think Biden is a, a, a friend of Israel. I'm not sure others are. There are people in the administration that are not, and there are people certainly in Congress that are not uh, friends of Israel or friends of the United States. To me, mostly, if you're an enemy of Israel, you also are an enemy of the United States. That's not always the case, but many of the people I know who are virulently anti-Israeli are anti-Western, they're anti-quote colonialists. They're anti, you know, they, they, they're, they're just anti, and they, they are as anti-American as they are anti-Israel. So I hope Israel and the United States work together. Each country has its problems and each country has its virtues, but we share more in common than than differentiates us.
0: Many Israelis like Ben-Gavir, as well as many American conservatives, oppose Palestinian statehood. Why do you continue to support it?
1: Well, I think it's good for Israel for there not to be hundreds of thousands of uh, Palestinians under their direct control. Um, I think a good divorce sometimes is is better than a bad marriage. And I think a divorce between the Israelis and the Palestinians, a separation. Uh, let the Palestinians have a state on what, 80 or 85 percent of the West Bank. Let Israel maintain its control over the Jordan Valley. Let's make sure that the Palestinian state is not an armed state. It can't have tanks and airplanes. It can have, you know, guns to protect its own citizens. Um, And as Netanyahu has said, and I support this, it's a state minus. It's not like a state like, you know, Germany or France. It's a state that can't have a foreign Uh, policy attacking uh, Israel. It can't have an army that attacks Israel. It can't be allowed to send rockets from uh, the West Bank to the uh, Ben-Gurion airport. Um, But I think giving the Palestinians the right to control their own fate is good for Israel and good for the Palestinians. Look, there already is a Palestinian state. Let's be clear. If you ever go to Israel, it would really be good to go to visit Ramallah, Ramallah is the operational capital of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, I go there whenever I'm in Israel, I visit the prime minister of the Palestinian Authority, I visit President Abbas, Um, I know them, I've had relationships with them. Over the years, you go to Ramallah, there isn't a single Israeli in sight there. There is not a single Israeli policeman in all of Ramallah, there's not a single Israeli soldier. They vote, they pick their own mayor, their own city council, They collect their own garbage. They have their own sewage system. Uh, They have their own police force. They are a little state. Now, that could easily be expanded. In 1948, the UN offered the Palestinians a state on what would be the majority of arable land in that area. They turned it down. In 1967, the Israelis said they would be open to that. In 1990, in 2000, 2001, 2005, 2008, And the Palestinians have always rejected a Palestinian state because deep down, what they really want is no Jewish state. They want no Jewish state more than they want there to be a Palestinian state. And remember, too, Israel is not only a Jewish state. It's uh, 20 percent Arab, um, most of whom are Muslim. It has a significant Christian population, a significant Russian Orthodox population. It's a multiracial society. You go there, Miss Israel was this gorgeous, magnificent, beautiful uh, woman from Ethiopia, black woman from Ethiopia. Some of the leaders of the army now are Ethiopian Jews, uh, uh, African Jews. Um, It's it's a real, real mixture of people, of Sephardic Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, atheists, secularists, you know, uh, very religious, somewhat religious. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a complete mosaic, and uh, it has more diversity than almost any other country I've ever seen. And the idea of calling it an apartheid state, I have been to South Africa. I was one of the lawyers for Nelson Mandela. We tried to arrange a prisoner exchange. I worked with the ANC. I know what apartheid is. Apartheid is a very tiny percentage of white population from abroad, trying to control the lives and destinies of the vast, vast majority of people who are black Africans. That's what apartheid was. And thank God it was destroyed forever. And Israel, nothing in common with South African apartheid. Hmm. In
0: The Price of Principle, your new book, you called critical race theory or CRT, quote, a propagandistic theory, end quote. Would you expand upon what you mean by that?
1: Sure. Um, the man who really invented uh, uh, critical race theory was himself a very thoughtful colleague of mine at, at, at Harvard Law School and wouldn't recognize uh, what today has become uh, called critical race theory. The first thing about critical race theories is it's not critical of uh, race theory at all. It doesn't allow criticism. It's propaganda. It's just presenting one side of every... Uh, issue. Uh, It's not uh, 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 an element that helps diversify academically and intellectually. Um, I think there's tremendous amount of opportunity to teach students, black and white students of every race, all about black history. It's so important to the history of America, so important to the history of the world, the contributions that uh, uh, African-Americans and other black people and people of color I've made to America is immeasurable. And that ought to be taught. But it ought to be taught in a historical, neutral fashion, equal criticism of all. Yes. Sides. You can't teach that every white person is a racist. Yes. You teach all of these absurd things that see everything through the prism of race. It's the opposite of Martin Luther King's dream.
0: That is absolutely right. And as someone who's biracial, it's very hard because that means half of me has to blame the other half of me for every societal ill. I mean, what do you do?
1: So, yeah, absolutely. We are seeing an increasing around the world of uh, people who are biracial, multiracial. Uh, Race is eventually becoming a less significant factor biologically as it becomes a more significant factor uh, politically and it creates a cognitive dissonance in you as a person, but in the country as a whole.
0: That is absolutely right. Now, also in your book, The Price of Principle, you write that one of the events that resulted in uh, you being canceled was defending President Trump, as we've discussed. Why was defending Trump uh, so offensive to lifelong friends when you had already defended or were associated with the defense of people like Harvey Weinstein, Claude Van Bulow and O.J.
1: Simpson? or much more. I, you know, I defended some of the worst people in the world. I have defended mass murderers, people who were accused of mass murder. I defended a young man who got the death penalty for killing a group of nine people, lying them flat on the ground. I defended uh, two young boys who were accused of killing a family, a whole family, including of soldiers. I have defended some of the worst people in the world. And, and, and don't hold that against me. That's like saying you should uh, be critical of a doctor who has treated some of the sickest people in the world. That's our job of a priest who has given, you know, blessing to some of the worst people in the world, the job of the lawyer or, or an interviewer who has interviewed some of the worst people in the world. So I have represented some of the worst. I've also represented some of the best people in the world. I represented Anatoly Sharansky. I represented dissidents in the Soviet Union. I represent dissidents in China. I've represented, uh, you know, great human rights activists around the world. But um, Trump was different because that was they people really thought that Trump was worse than any of these horrible killers or 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 criminals. And um I, I was never, never uh canceled for defending these other people. I was criticized, um, but never canceled. And uh it was only Trump that uh caused that and still causes it. I mean it still causes it. And um um, it tells you what, what kind where we are as a country today, how divided we are, that we can't defend somebody's right. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting because I have a friend who's a doctor, and he helped save Donald Trump's life uh, when Donald Trump had COVID. And um, he got a little bit of criticism, but not anything like my criticism. And so being a lawyer is different because, you know, you're standing up in front of the United States Senate. And you're standing up on behalf of the Constitution, but in the name of somebody who people who have known me for years just hate and despise. And so they turned it against me. Wow.
0: Now, another question that you address in The Price of Principle is whether America is a systemically racist nation. Would you take us through why you believe that it is not?
1: Well, I think it's a systemically anti-racist nation. It was a systemically racist, nation, of course, during slavery, of course, during Jim Crow, Uh, even when I was growing up. My wife comes from Charleston, South Carolina. She remembers drinking fountains that had the sign, you know, colored people uh, only or white people only. We were a systemically racist country. But since Brown versus Board of Education, and certainly since many of the years following that, um, we have turned from a systemically racist country to a systemically anti-racist country. Today, anti-racism is a very prominent aspect of American life in universities and corporations. Um, um, The pendulum has swung very, very widely, all forms of discrimination-based on race have been outlawed and people are appropriately condemned when they engage in in racist activity. That doesn't mean there's no racism. There's plenty of racism. Um, uh, We're a systemically anti-anti-Semitic country as well, and there's plenty of anti-Semitism. When I was growing up, we were a systemically anti-Semitic country. A a Jew couldn't uh, go to country clubs. A Jew couldn't live in certain neighborhoods. A Jew couldn't uh, work in certain corporations. That's all changed. And it's all changed with regard to African-Americans uh, as well. Plenty of racism left. Plenty of anti-Semitism left. Let's fight it. But let's not exaggerate and say that that the, the bigotry is systemic. It's not. It's the anti-bigotry that's systemic. And the, the racists have to confront the government now. The government's on the right side and the racists are on the wrong side.
0: That is absolutely succinctly put. I I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I am scheduled to be on a television show this week where we're going to be discussing reparations. And uh, one of the issues that I I feel very strongly about is that, you know, and I'm, I'm not for reparations, by the way, I believe that we are living in a country in a time when nothing is withheld from me because of my color. I may have interactions, as you pointed out, with people who hold some racist views, but I can go to any college that I want to. I can walk into any restaurant that I want to. I can sit in the front of a bus. I don't have to drink at a separate fountain. I don't have to go to a separate restroom you know those sorts of things don't exist anymore and so this argument that we are systemically racist uh, is is absolutely patently false
1: oh I agree and and it's it for people to say it shows a failure to understand change you know people have also said oh we're worse off today than we were in the 19 you know 40s and 50s when it comes to race no that just That just is, I'm old enough to remember that those were not the good old days. There was blatant racism and bigotry. Uh, uh, Look, take take the situation with women. When when I was growing up, uh, women were systemically discriminated against. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to get a job as a secretary. I was first in my class at Yale Law School, editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, and I was turned down from 33 out of 33 Wall Street firms. I only got one interview, and that was just uh, a cosmetic. Then my son graduated Yale Law School 25 years later. He got job offers all over. The same thing was true with my African-American friends. They couldn't get in the front door in the 1950s of a law firm, and today they're, they're, they're welcome. So recognize progress where it occurred fight against continuing injustices, never be satisfied, never be content with what you have. Always try to get more and better and improve the country, but don't deny history and don't deny change.
2: And
0: you know what's interesting about that is one of the other arguments I have about that is to see how BLM has squandered all of the money that they amassed uh, after the death of George Floyd. I had hoped that I would see more scholarships to HBCUs and more ways for Black people to work from the inside out in the system where we would have more Black judges, more correctional officers, more wardens, more uh, police officers, more, you know, everything, working within the system to make the changes. Because I think that's where real change happens.
1: Look, I I agree. I think that, uh, you know, it was Eric Hoffa, who was a great philosopher, who once said, every cause becomes a movement, the movement then becomes a business, and the business then becomes a racket. And that's happened to so many good Causes um, the money, you know, becomes too attractive, etc. And it's so important. Uh, look, it's so important for us to recognize uh, the injustices that have existed in our criminal justice system for years, and and the injustices that have existed on the streets when it comes to young, particularly young black men. Uh, but let's let's cure it. Let's stop it instead of trying to just turn against each other. Um, uh, For me, the worst example of this is Kim Potter. I don't know if you know the story. Kim Potter was a very distinguished, uh, very celebrated and honored white police woman in Minnesota, in a city called Brooklyn, Minnesota. I come from Brooklyn, but not in Minnesota. And she was a great cop. And she was chasing a young black man who had a record and and, um, and, he, and she arrested him with, a, with her fellow other policemen and, and the kid escaped and got to the back of a car and tried to drive off with a policeman hanging on the side and other people in front who he could have killed. So Officer Potter did the right thing in her mind. She believed she was pulling out her taser. So she could tase this young man and stop him from escaping. And she made a horrible, tragic, terrible mistake. She pulled out her revolver. Everybody, mm-hmm. even, nobody claims it was intentional. And she shot and she killed this young man. Horrible, horrible tragedy. Probably should have lost her job. It, she shouldn't have ta- uh, uh, made that mistake. Uh, it was negligence. Two years in prison, two years in prison, no bail. Uh, f- voluntary and involuntary manslaughter, both. Uh, that is an abuse of the criminal justice system um, To and, and it was a result of the Black Lives Movement. It was an overreaction. The pendulum swung too far. What Chauvin did was, of course, horrible, inexcusable. He deserves every minute of imprisonment he gets and that you know the, the the policeman who killed him with his knee on his neck. But to make a comparison between yeah. that and a woman who makes an honest mistake is just just overcriminalization. Look, we're seeing the same thing happen now with um, Alec Baldwin, uh, who made a tragic mistake. But I'm against the overcriminalization, without regard to race, without regard to gender. Accidents are accidents, and they ought to be punished civilly not criminally. We agree. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and, and as I said, you know, it's it's so interesting because when you talk to other people, you find these points of connection. As a conservative, I am staunchly pro-life. I am completely against abortion, but I'm also against the death penalty. I'm consistent on the issue of life. I believe that
1: very few people I've written about that. You are a remarkable and a remarkably principled person. Because the vast majority of people I know who are pro-life are pro-death penalty, and you've taken it, I agree with your, look, I am pro-life too, I, I am pro-life of the mother and pro-life of the fetus, and when tragic choices have to be made, they have to be made, and the question is who should make them, those are hard questions, I have another book coming out now called who shall live and who shall die about how the law deals with life and death decisions and abortion is part of it, gun control is part of it, capital punishment is part of it. I think you would enjoy reading it because your views and my views, you're a conservative, I'm a liberal, but we're closer together than either of us are to the extremes on our side.
0: Well, we'll just have to have you back to talk about it.
1: So that'll be awesome. Enormously, you are a terrific, terrific uh, interviewer. And, Thank you. Um, I'm amazed at how much in common uh, we have, notwithstanding our differences. Today, we talked a lot about our similarities. Invite me back sometime. We'll talk a little bit more about our differences.
0: That's going to be an awesome day. We'll definitely do it. If you're just joining our segment, we have had uh, Professor Alan Dershowitz. His new book is called The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. So I'm sure it's available at Amazon and all of the other places where you can find books online. How can our followers continue to follow your
1: work and find you online, Professor? You can start the next hour at 5:30. I do my podcast every day. Today it's on on guns. Uh, yesterday it was on classified material. Uh, it's on all kinds of issues, and it's on Rumble. It's on YouTube. You can get it live at 5:30. You you can get it 24 uh, seven. Obviously on replay, half the show is devoted to me expressing my views on something, and then I take questions and argue with the questions and uh, have a little bit of of interaction there so please listen and write me questions if you disagree excellent
0: as always it's fabulous when you're on the show and we'll look forward to the new book and having you back on
1: well thank you so much
0: all right now it's that time in the show where we have dk come in and tell us what he thought of all of that dk come on in hola well hello
2: Oh, it was an excellent, excellent, excellent tonight. I think I lost track of all the excellence he gave you, but that was—he did a great job.
0: You know, some of my favorite shows have been with Alan Dershowitz, and as you know, he pointed out, he is someone who holds a, a liberal ideology. I don't. Um, in many ways, we're we're very different, but as he pointed out, in many ways, we're very much the same, and that's. One of the laments that I have uh, with the way that uh, political conversations kind of go now, where there are people who hold uh, some dissenting opinions, but there's a lot of people that uh, when you talk to them, you find out that you have a lot in common. And I like connecting with people. And uh, I I, I have always enjoyed the shows where Professor Dershowitz comes on. And uh, I look forward to the next time that he'll be on with this next book. I'm really looking forward to it.
2: It was really interesting the perspective we have as Black conservatives because typically, and we've met a few of them, a Black conservative comes from a family that would never dream of voting for a Republican. You know, so like my mother, she has her Obama plate in a well easily visible place, and you know the Obama plate she honors him to that degree, and you know I campaign against. Obama both times. So I think Black conservatives, because of our families and our friends and our neighbors, tend to be liberal. We tend not to demonize people who disagree with us as much as uh, others might. But on the other hand, like you mentioned with Alan, we tend to take a lot more heat for being a Black conservative than we would if we were, you know, the typical white conservatives. So we we get... we have a different, uh, different perspective. We get it both ways. you know. We, I could see both sides of the argument. And it was a great point.
0: It was. So what are your thoughts?
2: I wanted to talk a little about um, that whole Florida scuffle sc- 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 uh, about uh, you saw the headlines like I did. Ron DeSantis is going to ban the teaching of black history in high schools and all these over-the-top headlines, and I and I kind of stayed silent about it for a while because I knew that seemed a bit extreme for like anyone, you know. Today I declare that there shall be no teaching of Black history anywhere in the state. That's, <laughs> that did not seem likely, so I wanted to get more information before I comment upon it.
0: And it's interesting that we talked
2: to Professor
0: Dershowitz a little bit about that because I think that that whole conversation has been so conflated. Uh, that people think that it's a racist proposition that, you know, we're trying to squelch the teaching of black history and that we want to keep the patriarchy and white supremacy and all of those kinds of things. But he, he was absolutely right in the points that he made. And so I'm so glad that we touched on that today.
2: Well, I know that you're a, an educator yourself. You know, you homeschool three kids. Um, three,
0: And part of it was because of black history. A lot of people get our story wrong.
2: Yeah, and you, you taught black history, so I wanted to show this uh, Ron DeSantis video so we can get it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak.
3: On the AP African American Studies course that was rejected by the state, been a lot of criticism of that move, uh, people saying, you know, this is exactly what we were fearing with the Individual Freedom Bill. I don't know if you or the commissioner could maybe expand a little bit more about what sure. was I mean, in I think course. So, um, and as you know, uh, in the state of Florida, our education standards not only don't prevent, but they require teaching black history, all the important things that's part of our core curriculum. This was a separate course on top of that for advanced placement credit, and the issue is we have guidelines and standards in Florida. Uh, we want education, not indoctrination. If you fall on the side of indoctrination, we're going to decline. If it's education, then we will do. this. So when I heard it, we didn't meet the standards. I figured yeah, they may be doing theory. It's way more than that this course on black history. What are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory now who would say that an important part of black history mm-hmm. is queer theory? That is somebody pushing an agenda on our kids and so when you look to see they have stuff about intersectionality Abolishing prisons. That's a political agenda. And so we're on that's the wrong side of the line for Florida standards We believe in teaching kids uh, facts and how to think but we don't believe they should have an agenda imposed on them When you try to use black history to shoehorn in queer theory uh, You are clearly trying to use that uh, for political purposes governor
0: one of the AP studies that um, course parts have been Listed as concerning is the topic of movements for Black Lives. Can you describe what about that is concerning?
3: As some people are calling it, is that what calling the Black History inferior. So if you read actually what's in there, they're advocating things like abolishing prisons. Now, now that's a that's a radical political position. You're free to take that in your own life. I don't think very many people would think that that would actually work. Um, but how is that being taught as fact to be able uh, to do that? And I also think it's not fair to say that somehow abolishing prisons is somehow linked to like black experience and that that's what black people want. I don't think that's true at all. I think they want law and order just like anybody else wants law and order. So that is more of ideology being used under the guise of history and we wanna do uh, history. That's what our standards for, for black history are. It's just cut and dried history. You learn all the basics, you learn about the great figures. And you know, I view it as American history. I don't view it as separate history. You know, we have history it, a lot of different shapes and sizes. People that have participated uh, to make the country great. Uh, people that have stood up when it wasn't easy, and they all deserve uh, uh, to be taught. But abolishing prisons being taught to high school kids as if that's somehow a fact? No, uh, that, that's that's not appropriate.
2: You gotta love Ron DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> So cool. So at the heart of the matter is that despite the headlines we've been seeing this last week, African-American studies is very different from African-American history. African-American history, you learned about slavery, uh, Blacks during the colonial period, Blacks, um, how we survived during the Civil War, Reconstruction. Reconstruction, uh, yeah. The, the Civil Rights Movement, Jim Crow. We learned about people like Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, uh, Booker T. Washington, Frederick Douglass, and, and so forth. Uh, African American Studies covers a lot of that, but they add what's important to their progressive agenda. you heard DeSantis mentioned a few of those things, you know, uh-huh. abolishing prisons, learning about Queer, queer theory. theory. You learn about white supremacy. You learn about police brutality. You learn about CRT. Um, uh, those kind of issues, you know. And of course, we learn about ap- anti-capitalism. You know, uh, teaching race or climate are the two most common areas in which teachers try to promote a Marxist agenda. You know, you talk about reparations or or the fuel emissions, you know, uh, fossil fuels, they're both designed to draw the audience to an anti-capitalist, pro-Marxist conclusion. And if you look at the syllabus for these uh, African-American study classes, it's really telling because in those study classes, you have to read the 1619 Project,
0: uh,
2: anti uh, race how to be an anti-racist or white fragility. But yeah. you never see authors like Alan West or Thomas Sowell or Shelby Still or Walter Williams. Yeah, yeah or Ken Walt- Blackwell. Yeah. So is the, they have a presentation, but it's a very one sided presentation. They won't give both sides of the argument. That's and Like I mentioned, different. you're an educator, you taught Black history, and I'm really interested in, uh, in your comments on this.
0: Well, it's absolutely true. I mean, part of it is that, uh, you know, black history is relegated to the month of February, you always study about Martin Luther King, or uh, Harriet Tubman, or, you know, those kinds of things. It's never really uh, the story of African-Americans in this country. Um, one of the other things that we studied was African-Americans, I mean, Africans around the world. I mean, black. the story of black people around the world. As you know, my youngest was very much into capoeira, which is a, a, a Brazilian martial art that is based on the Afro-Brazilian slave trade that when the uh, slaves were in Brazil, they couldn't communicate with each other. So they did these kind of, uh, it looked like dances, but they were these uh, self-defense moves so that if they ever got away from their master, they would be able to defend themselves. And so there's a whole history around the world of black and brown people that this country is not very good about teaching and not in a nuanced way. Um, We're seeing more and more of that now where it's, you know, white people are bad and black people are good. All white people are bad and all black people are good. And, you know, as someone who is a Christian, I know that this world suffers from a sin problem and that not all of anything is good, Um, that we are all flawed people. Um, And so I'm not going to teach my kids. Um, And, you know, all my kids have some white in them also. So, you know, I'm not going to teach my kids that white people are bad and that black people are the saviors of the world. Um, You know, there are people who are black that are bad. I mean, as we pointed out today in some of the court cases that we discussed, these are people that did some things that were wrong that needed to be defended, um, but they had committed crimes. So, I mean, you know, to paint with a brush, a broad brush that everyone white is bad and everyone black is good. We are all flawed people in need of a perfect savior, Um, but we have history. And so to study that history and the impact that it's made on cultures, um, the history of black people in this country changed the trajectory of this country to today. That's why we're having this conversation. Um, it's changed the trajectory of countries around the world, um, as you and I have discussed offline a lot. You know, in 1619, America wasn't even America; it was a British colony. So, you know, the impact of of the of the British Empire uh, on black people, and so there's so much, and it's so nuanced. And so, to start blaming people for all of these kinds of things. It seems to me, I don't know, at this point, we're so entrenched in the fabric of this country. There is no way to uh, extricate. The Black influence on this country. There's absolutely no way. So, why don't we move forward and try to find ways to address some of the problems that we still face, as we discussed with Professor Dershowitz? I mean, having more people in the criminal justice system uh, who are of color, having more people, uh, you know, in all of these professions that can address some of the concerns. There's always been a I don't. I don't know the best terminology to use, but you know, uh, community policing in the black community. There's always been uh, suspicion, and uh, there there there's always been kind of bad blood. Um, so why don't we address some of those things? I've seen some. I've seen some really unique uh, ways to try to address some of that. So let's talk about those kinds of things, because you know. On the left, uh, we've got all of these people flooding our border, right? And people are like, oh, but they're, they're, they're leaving these tragic lives and, and we need to, to uh, integrate that and, and all of those kinds of things. It seems to me that there's kind of a similar story here. We're all here now right? And if immigration is so bad, let's fix what's wrong. It's the same with the black community. If there are so many problems, let's fix the problems. But hating a group of people just because of their skin color is not the answer.
2: Well said. So we're going to wrap
0: up another great episode of African American Conservatives. I'm going to remind you to go to Anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. You can also go to brightnews.com, the YouTube channel there. We would love to see you subscribe. Uh, There are a number of great programs on Bright News, and this is one of them. So please subscribe. And also you can find uh, our commentary at Acons.Substack.com. Until then, it's Marie. D-K with African-American conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement.